This is In My Honest Opinion, a collection of NBR's top columnists from this week. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. The New Zealand rugby hierarchy would do well to leave head office once in a while and spend time at rugby clubs. Seeing for real how the game here actually survives, because without club rugby, it wouldn't. Writes Martin Devlin in this week's Playing the Ball. Martin, why don't you tell us about what you got up to at King's birthday weekend? Bit of a bit of a trip for you? Yeah, a trip down south, and way down south as a matter of fact. It was the Kurau Club's 125th anniversary. Now, if you don't know where Kurau is, it's in North Otago. Uh, we flew down to Christchurch and drove about a three-hour drive, and then you kind of turn and land through Waimati, and then you arrive in Kurau. And it's um, just a beautiful little rural village surrounded by huge high mountains, and it's where a certain R, big M, small C, big C, played his first rugby as a kid, the Kurau kid, Richie McCall. So you were there, what, a bit of a function for to celebrate the 125th, was it? Yeah, look, a mate of mine was the MC for the weekend, and um, he just asked if I'd come down and give him a hand and interview Richie on stage. So I said, yeah, heck yeah, any opportunity to uh, get to spend some time with him. And so I had half an hour with him on stage. Um, just a fabulous weekend, mate. I mean, I, I paid for my own way down there and everything. So it was, you know, normally with these gigs, you get paid. I said, no, no I'll come down and, and I'll give you a hand. Um, and 350 people live pretty much in that village. Um, all of them and more were on the sideline for they had a uh, celebration game as part of their normal club rugby competition. Then afterwards, everyone went to the town hall for the official function. What uh, what was the sense among the punters about the how, how club rugby is going for them at the moment? Well, it's like, you know, I spent last weekend at um, Takapuna on the North Shore and, you know, you get the same, you know, you have the same, pretty much the same conversations. Um, without these people, and these are just what we would call normal New Zealanders, whatever that is these days, or what you and me have grown up would call normal New Zealanders. These are just hardworking Kiwis, you know, with families, uh, jobs, careers, who choose this part of the country to live in, and they do it for obvious reasons. It's out of the rat race, you know. Um, they don't have ram raids there, Hamish. Um, you know, their kids can run around, they can actually play in the street, you feel pretty safe. Um, but to, to have a club like this to... Uh, its ability to, to thrive and survive depends entirely on those people putting their hands in their pockets. And that hasn't changed really for club rugby over a hundred and more years in this country. And it doesn't change between Kurana and Takapuna. You know, exactly the same. You know, you go out there, it's just it's manned and womaned by volunteers and, and parents of kids who play their rugby there. And, you know, despite the best efforts for New Zealand rugby and to and Silver Lake to convince us that they, you know, they will the the godfather and the beholden parent, and we all owe them so much. The reality is without people putting their hands in their pockets and communities like this and clubs all over the country, there is no club rugby. Without club rugby, there are no cushy admin office jobs to administer the game. So, you know, that's what I'm kind of just pointing out and hoping to point out in this column pretty much. Did the um, did clubs at that sort of level get anything in the, in the Silver Lake deal? Yeah, they got a few grand. Yep. You know, look, I know, and I won't mention... I know one club in Auckland, for example, that got given $8,000, and that was to help them convert their changing rooms into unisex changing rooms because the women don't like all showering together and stuff like that. I mean, $8,000, have you ever tried to renovate a bathroom any time in the last two or three years? No, no. You're I not haven't. getting out. Okay, you're not getting out with under 50 grand. Let's be honest about it, okay? Now, you look at a club changing rooms. How much do you think that's going to cost to do that? So, this particular club gave their 8000 to another club 
that got given 5,000. And with that 13,000, they thought that club might actually do something. So, you know, any time you get handed money, it doesn't matter when it is, you're not going to turn it away, are you? You're always going to be grateful for it. But the reality is, is those small handouts to clubs don't keep these clubs alive. You know, on the night of this particular celebration, um, they auctioned all the playing jerseys from the first 15 guys that had played that afternoon. And I write in the column, um, these jerseys were taken home, washed, and I do mean taken home to someone's place or some group of someone's places to wash because there is no laundromat in Kura. Somebody just doesn't come in and pick them up in a bag like they do after All Blacks training. Um, they were ironed, pressed, and then brought back looking as fresh as new, and they were you know, auctioned on the night. They raised over $40,000 in an auction with 300 people in a hall. That money survives that club for the next year, plus the little bit that New Zealand rugby gives. But the point of the matter is, without good people doing these things, doing them selflessly, doing them year after year, doing them without needing a pat on the back, doing them without head office asking them or telling them to do it, these clubs don't survive. All of a sudden, those clubs don't survive. There are no players. There are no players. There are no games. There is no game. You don't sit there in head office earning a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year being a marketing consultant. It's a pretty easy chain to follow up, isn't it? Do you think so? You think NZ Rugby could be doing more? I mean, is it is it about oh, showing course. face? Yeah, is oh, it of about? Course it could be doing. You know, of course. They, but they, you know, New Zealand Rugby are about arguing about whether you should have a rainbow flag or not. You know, that's where New Zealand Rugby's at at the moment. They're about ticking KPI boxes and and they're about making sure that. You know, they don't get attacked on social media and people don't yell at them too much. Um, this is not an, 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 an argument that's come along today. This is an, an argument in a set of circumstances that we've been looking at for decades now. You know, a lot of these clubs have had to merge with other clubs. Um, it's just the way that rugby is in this country. But ignore it at your peril. Because yeah. the day that these clubs shut their doors, there is no new Richie McCaw playing rugby at seven years old on that. I mean, ultimately, that's really what I'd really like to talk about in terms of the column. And that. It's a fantastic story. And, you know, I was watching him on that Saturday afternoon. And honestly, there's, you know, the most humble, kind and generous guy this guy is. He's an absolute superstar. He's Mick Jagger, mate. I mean, he's one of the biggest rock stars we have in New Zealand. He's sitting there signing every autograph. You're talking to him, there are people barging into your wanting photos. You're talking to him, there are kids throwing him. Everyone wants to pass him a rugby ball, of course. And you're looking at it, and I was looking at it wondering, I wonder whether or not another little kid is going to come from here and eventually be the captain of the greatest team in the world and become so famous he's invited to the King's coronation. It's a hell of a story, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. All right, Martin, thanks very much for your time. See you, Amish. Cheers, mate. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. This week's column from Simon Bridges speaks of a love affair with going into the office over working from home. Simon, you think the office is back? I do. Look, I think the jury's in. I think it's true when you listen to Northern Hemisphere commentary, you see what's happening in Australia. Um, And I think it's actually true in New Zealand. Um, It's back in the office. I'm not saying that's universally happening, but I think what's pleasing is there is a consensus amongst businesses, small through large, that it's increasingly what um, should happen. And the reasons I think for that are pretty simple. Look, our young need it. Um, They need the collaboration, the socialization, the mentoring um, that comes from being in the office. No one got a promotion uh, I don't think um, sitting back remotely and and sort of hiding the light under a bushel and not learning from others. Um, and secondly, I think our urban areas, particularly our city, which you can see behind me there, uh, but also other urban areas around New Zealand, 
need that foot traffic, that vibrancy that comes from people being out and about and around, buying the coffee, talking to each other, getting ideas. So yeah, the office is back. So in your role as Chamber of Commerce CEO, you'd clearly like to see the Auckland CBD rejuvenated um, and as you say, other centres rejuvenated. So should employers be offering employees perks to, to get them back into the office or what should be happening here? I think in the end, and I don't want to claim I'm giving legal advice, but I think in the end, um, unless there are very special reasons, employers can be clear about what they want to see, uh, if that is, for example, back in the office. The question of how they get um, workers back in the office is in the end a practical one for those uh, employers. Now, it may be, and I think it was the case, uh, that employers were a bit scared uh, they, about how to go about that because they thought, you know, um, it's a it's a, um, a seller's market. Our uh, employee has a lot of options at other banks, at other financial services uh, firms, if, if that was the example. Uh, and so we can't be too pushy about that. But of course, the balance there has changed. We've seen more immigration. Um, we, we are in technically at least a, a recession. And so I think there is... Um, a, a renewed sense that bosses can be a bit less fearful about saying, you know what, it's right for our business, it's right for your colleagues for you to be back uh, in the office. I think actually that the, the, the issues around people staying at home come down to a couple of things. Transport, that's a good excuse, but by the way, it was there pre-COVID as well. Um, and secondly, around um, uh, if I can put it this way, mature workers, perhaps workers have been in the job uh, a while who know what they're doing, who selfishly, in quotes, want to be at home uh, in their in their bed robe um, because that's more comfortable for them. But, but my message, and I think increasingly bosses' messages, no, no, your office, your um, youthful colleagues, your city needs you back. So we've learned from COVID over that period where working did change that working from home all the time really doesn't suit most people. Yet now we know that working in the office also doesn't really suit most people when it's five days a week. So surely a hybrid model, perhaps one or two days at home, would be a make for a happier workforce? I mean, I think in reality, um, I'm not suggesting to you that suddenly we're going to magically be back at every worker five days a week from 8.30 a.m. on Monday to 5.30 p.m. on Friday being in the office. Um, I think there's a distinction to be made with um, working when you are working in the office primarily uh, in flexible hours. Flexibility is a good thing. It's pro-workers. It's here to stay, you know, whether it's mum or dad picking up the kids uh, on occasion or looking after an elderly relative or whatever it is, um, there'll be a bit of um, that. Look, I think I'm also realistic to know that um, there will be circumstances where, you know, maybe it's four days in the office and one day uh, at home or, or, or what have you. I'm simply making a general point, which is um, generally speaking, this kind of three days, two days um, in the office, not um, or even worse, two days, three days. I think the appetite from that uh, for that from employers, small through large, is rapidly diminishing. There's a growing consensus all over the world and here in Auckland. Um, that uh, we want workers back for the most part in the office.
Mm-hmm. Now, you did touch on it slightly before, but transport, um, transport being a lost productivity time for workers unless they can access a laptop and some internet that's perhaps paid for by their employer. So, you know, until Auckland and other cities have a fast and reliable transport network, shouldn't it be that people could um, perhaps on a day that they're very busy and need to concentrate, uh, it's better for the whole workforce if they stay at home? Not for everyone. Um, I think that is probably the best um, uh, excuse, if I can call it an excuse, for staying at home, right? Um, what people will say, workers will say, hey, I like being in the office. What I don't like is the traffic and the hour each way uh, commute. Yep, I get that. But it's a non-fundamental argument, I, th- I think, in the end. What I mean by that is, look, um, they were doing it pre-COVID. COVID's got them into the habit of working from home uh, more. And I think in a pros-con sense, that argument around our young people and engaging them and and doing what's right by them, that argument around our economy really and the vibrancy of our cities are needing us back and work are stronger arguments uh, by far. And um, you know, they are worth um, uh, Jim or Jenny or whoever it is getting on the bus are getting on the train um, or, or getting on their moped and getting into work. Simon, thanks for your time. Thanks so much. Duncan Disorderly this week reckons this election is coming down to the battle of the plus ones. Duncan, you think it's been a horror start for the centre-left who can least afford it? Yeah, well, it's just, I mean, what um, what's happened in the last couple of weeks is that you've seen um, the Greens come forward with the wealth tax because Labour talked about you know, wealth tax, but never followed through on it. They identified what the problem was, but never did anything. So the Greens come in and fill that gap, and then you've got the Māori Party defending the gangs. What a dreadful way to start. Uh, Chris Hipkins needed a wealth tax like a hole in the head, and uh, Chris Hipkins didn't need to be relying on a party, probably, that is the party that is now supporting the gangs. So that's what, that's what Chris Luxton will say. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's been a great start for them. And the campaign's underway. To, to, to suggest that it's only going to be four weeks later on in the year. It's it's on. It's it's it's, like, it's not even the phony campaign. It's going to be a long, hard campaign now, right the way through winter. Mm-hmm. These guys are out there on the hustings. You can see it. And um, I've done some long campaigns, and boy, they just never they never end. You know. Now you think the election is shaping up quite well for National Act, and that's helped by the recession we're now in. Yeah, I think the technical recession that we've that we're in right now has been as godsend for for National because it needed something. And potentially not of its own making because it seems to stuff things up when it opens its mouth. It just underwhelms, uh, as you've seen this past weekend with its gang policy stuff. With the recession, I've never seen a government um, get back into power after um, presiding during a recession. There's no government that I can point to in New Zealand's history that has uh, overseen a recession in election year and gone on to win the election. They've always been turfed out. So history is not on the government side. National will know that. There'll be some wise souls there somewhere in the back rooms that'll be telling Lux in this. Um, so that's good for them. I mean, they can just say, hey, we'll get you out of recession. The, the irony will be, probably by the time the election comes around, we'll be out of recession. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll be too late. The damage is being done right now. And that's why National set the hustings. Mm-hmm. 
Now you talk about in your column about the Greens announcing the wealth tax mm. um, and also you suggest that James Shaw should just jump ship to national. Yeah, um, he won't, of course. I'm just, I'm just being, um, I'm sort of agitating there just to, just to put a bit of a, bit of colour and a bit of stir in there. But, but the Greens have been awful. The Greens have had um, le- the, the leadership um, push around James Shaw was not well thought through. It was dreadful. Who would push someone out and not have an alternative candidate? That was a disaster, and they'll pay the price for that. Um, they've also had um, issues with MPs being disloyal and, and resigning and, and bagging the leadership, and then they've now had this wealth tax, which is almost a bit of sabotage. Labor didn't want to go that far. They didn't want the centre-left to go that far. They wanted to say there was an issue, but we'll look at it later. They didn't want the Greens to come and fill the gap. The Greens did what the Greens did, and it's fine. That's, 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 that's what they stand for. But it hasn't been helpful to the centre-left mission of staying in power. Hip, Hipkins, is, his job's just become harder. So you reckon the, the left parties are sabotaging Labour's prospects more so than, say, actors yeah, to national? they might be. I mean, you look at, well, actors been actors been actually quite well disciplined. You know, it's, it's very hard to lead a party of new MPs in Parliament. All sorts of things go wrong. Look at Winston in 96 with his 13 MPs, most of them new. Um, it can be a nightmare... Um, Nightmare place when you're new and you can make mistakes and do things. But um, Seymour has kept on top of his party well. He, he's, he's kept anything, any problems, any issues behind the scenes, they've been they've stayed there and nothing's been out in front of the public and Seymour's been given a free platform to you know make his noise and, and be heard. That's quite remarkable. And also Luxon, if you think about it, he, he got a national party that was in trouble. Their the, the disciplines were terrible. They had made far too many mistakes. They were infighting. He stopped that. Lots of criticism about Luxon, I agree. And I've, and I've been one to be heavily critical of him. But if you can say one thing, is he's got their discipline under control. Mm. Governments need to look like the governments in waiting. And National Act is starting to just emerge, maybe just ahead of the the chaos on the other side, which shows Labour, Labour ministers resigning. You've had the Greens with their internal woes, and then the Greens with their sabotage, and then now the Māori Party with their gang affiliation. You see the National Party and the Act Party starting to emerge is a little bit more stable. Mm-hmm. Um, you've mentioned that the election run-up this year has been very long mm. so far. Is there anything else that's really standing out to you as different from previous elections? Oh, I, well, I think it's the plus one election. I mean, uh, and I've written about this. this in the past, we've it's been so presidential. It's been Key versus Clark, or or, or Brash and there versus Clark. So it's been it's been very presidential, Jacinda. Um, this time you got plus ones. The, the 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 focus is on the parties on the fringes. Who's the weakest? Mm. Who's the scariest? Who do you love? Who do you love? who loves who the most? Who likes who the most? Who scares who the most? So that's that's the battle of the because the, they think they think harder than some of the big parties. Big parties are trying to be bland and suck in the centre. They're trying to appeal to those maybe those those mum and dads who are just a bit shaky on national labour. Where do we want to put our vote? That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to appeal to them by throwing in some hard policies to get their parties to come to the right or to, or, or to the left respectively. Um, the focus is very much on the smaller parties at the moment. Mm-hmm. And is that also to do with, you know, the two leaders of the major parties just not standing out as being th- very exciting? They're trying to outbland each other. Uh, and they're, trying to, they're trying to say, hey, I'm more boring than you. No, I'm more boring than you. No, I'm more boring than you. So, um, and that's what you have to do because if you get too extreme, then suddenly you're you're a fringe, you know, and you want to be seen as, the, as someone who sort of monsters the middle. So... Yeah, that's why they're, they're, and the minor parties know this at the moment too, so they're making hay while the sun's shining, you know, they're having a go. But it'll, the, the focus will refocus on the big boys when it comes to that last four weeks, but right now, they get in their day in the sun. Duncan, thanks for your time. You're welcome. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. 
In her flipside column this week, MBR's Dita Deboni looks at a rash of what she calls race baiting used by the National and ACT parties as the general election draws closer and concludes the strategy is ruinous to society. Well, Dita, some <laughs> fighting words there. Uh, you focus on three recent issues that have been in the news that have had a, ra- a racial element or tinge to them. The first one being road signs. What was that all about? Yes, road signs. I mean, obviously these things have been happening for a while, but of the recent sort of events, um, the road signs issue came out at the end of May when um, Waka Kotahi, with the Te Reo um, body that sort of promotes Te Reo, decided that they'd put out 29 signs um, for consultation that are in Te Reo and English. And for some reason, this set off a firestorm. I mean, this utterly benign thing that Mm. happens in most countries across the world. Go anywhere in Canada, you have French and English everywhere. Um, For some reason this created talkback mania um, (laughs) egged on by the National Party. Mm. I guess to some they got a lot of traction out of it. Does this yes. is this show to be sort of fertile ground f- for you know national enact? Given that you know gangs was sort of the next issue that sort of you know made national headlines. Absolutely. So even though they their own sort of some of their own MPs and even Young Act didn't didn't support the road sign debacle, but the gangs thing is a bit easier. And of course that is a perennial as well in politics. Mm. Um, wherever you have a, a meeting of gang members, you have some politician up in arms about it. Um, these two groups probably never coexist at all in the real world, but anyhow, uh, this was the Opotiki issue mm. where gangs had um, gathered to have a tangi for one of their leaders, and there was all sorts. Of, the the town had been shut down basically by people who lived in the town who mm. decided it was a good logistical thing to do, rather than for any other reason. But of course, it was painted as some kind of dramatic uh, gang takes over the town mm. kind of thing. Because there was that feeling, right, that some people felt that who are a gang to essentially close down our town or force us to close down our town? There were people out there who felt like this shouldn't be adhered to, you know? Yes. Well, I mean, if the police and the, the school principals and stuff had said, these gangs are forcing us to close down our town, that's one thing. They're yeah. people on the ground. That's not what they said. They said mm. it was just a logistical exercise that made life a lot easier to do that. And this brings us to the latest issue uh, dropped yesterday was hospital waiting lists, and it's been an absolute headline grabber. <laughs> well, National knows that um, there is support for getting rid of the, the Māori health authority, mm. which is basically a body just put in there to sort of cast an eye over what um, what spending can be done on initiatives to, to front load health initiatives in the Māori community, which is what we all say we want because we, we would like people to be looked at at the front end rather than the back end when they get to hospital and it's more complex and expensive. So there was already that background to it. Mm. Um, this, of course, is about um, some kind of list that has been created by people who are surgeons and so forth, hospital administrators, to say, well, add ethnicity into the list that creates a ranking for people to do with surgery, how how close they are to surgery. With need the closest, clinical need the closest, but all these other factors, including living living in a rural area and ethnicity and other things. We know um, from statistics and studies done by the DHB and people around the DHB themselves that Māori and Pacifica people are less likely to get surgery, longer waiting times and everything up until this point. And we say we want an equitable health system so they are Mm. simply trying to make it more equitable Mm. Um, but this has been seized upon by the media 
and by the National Party and really been made a meal of. Yeah, but interesting you bring up the media because with all these stories, they have sort of dominated the news cycle. So I sort of yeah. alluded to it before because these aren't new tactics, but it is proving fertile ground for the opposition to really seize on these issues. Do you think it is resonating with the public? Uh, it's resonating with a certain part of the public mm. who don't like the government and it's fair enough not to like the government but they're kind of moving more and more towards an extreme fringe mm. that created a lot of trouble um, many years in the past and their their influence seems to be growing more and more by the day and I would just argue that it's not really normal politicking, it's, it's creating a very severe division. We are already a divided country. Um, what we need is to work together, I would argue, and I think it's not for the betterment of society. I mean, David Seymour and Christopher Luxon are both intelligent people, mm-hmm. and I think using these tactics is very disappointing, and the things that they suggest will only exacerbate the problems they claim to care about. It's an election year as we run up to that final date. How do you think you know these issues and the way they've sort of been... Uh, sort of seized upon by the media may shape sort of electioneering in the months to come? I think it will gather some people who are malcontented, certainly Mm. in the wider net. But I think, and I hope, that it actually makes intelligent people think that's all right for now to get all up in arms about this kind of stuff. But what is the impact on society down the track? You know, what kind of world are we living with, leaving with our children if we, we can't come together and, and work together to make a better society? I mean, it sounds like Goldilocks, but, <laughs> you know, that's what we're trying to do, I would have thought. So, you know, I'd like to see them change tack, but I don't think they will. And that's been this week's In My Honest Opinion. To get your opinions heard, head on over to nbr.co.nz.